college in, in, kind of introduced me to a, a new truth, and I was introduced to a lot of beautiful uh, women. Guys were going out drinking, and I did it. I enjoyed um, enjoyed it to some some level, but really, my, my drug of choice was really just um, just to spend time with women. I was I was I craved the um, the affection, the attention. It became almost overpowering uh, to me. The problem is, I didn't. Um, I, I really didn't know how to care for a woman. I didn't know what that looked like. I was infatuated with my needs, and I really I wanted to love in a way that um, was not harmful or hurtful, but I had a way of ending relationships in a very destructive way, and that really weighed heavily on me. It was like I, I didn't want to hurt them, and I didn't want my, my, my truth to be the, the truth of who I was, but it was as if I couldn't stop. I met a lady, um, really, uh, really cared about her, and uh, and we became um, um, uh, quite interested in each other from from a lot of different levels. We slept together. We, um, we we ended up living together, and I thought, well, this perhaps this is the woman I want to marry. We dated for for a couple of years, um, but um, but I but I wasn't I wasn't faithful to her on a, on a couple of occasions that. Um, uh, she actually uh, knew that I was unfaithful to her, and, and uh, after the first time, I just I felt unbelievably remorseful. I was sad. I even cried. Uh, she cried. I knew how badly it hurt her, and um, and then months later, I um, I did the same thing, and uh, it was it, uh, I go back to that statement. It seemed like I just couldn't keep it on the track, but somehow I uh, I rationalized it off. But I felt that internal strife. With, with that, um, almost wishing that I felt worse about it than what I did because my head knew how bad it really was. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says that we like sheep have gone astray. What you heard from John is John realizing that his life, he was acting out what the Bible said for thousands of years. There's something in all of us that are like sheep. We go astray. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone whatever God's might be. Now, for some of us, it might be lust. For some of us, it might be anger. For some of us, it might be impatience. For some of us, it might be uh, just not being as joyful as we think we ought to be. But there's something in all of us. And if you can't see it in yourselves, you can definitely see it in everybody else, right? Everybody else is like sheep who go astray. You see it in your kids. You see it in your grandkids. You see it in your employees when you're trying to manage. You're like, wow, why is management, why does leadership require so much constant realignment? Well, the Bible says that uh, we, we all need a shepherd. And more than that, we need to be shepherded in such a way that we can eventually be a shepherd to someone. I read a book about a year ago. The book is called The Way of the Shepherd. And in this book, it talks about seven ancient secrets to managing productive people. And it's a true story about a cub reporter. And this cub reporter begins to investigate. And he begins to investigate. He's trying to prove his career. So part of that is he wants to impress his editor. So he's going to try and land an interview with the then CEO of General Technologies, a company that had the highest level of satisfaction amongst their employees, and a CEO who never took interviews, despite leading his company to 17 years of record growth as a Fortune 50 company. Well, he showed up one day to his office, and sure enough, the request he put in for the interview, to interview Ted McBride, got an answer from the assistant 
that said, yes, he'll do the interview. He was ecstatic. He showed up at General Technologies and immediately he was struck by the company. As he walked into the atrium, he noticed the energy, the robustness, the people seemed to really enjoy each other and everything about it was alive. He noticed, man, this place must really care about their, about their employees. He noticed the, the health club over here and he, he noticed the, the credit union in this section. He noticed the food court. But mostly he noticed the look in the eyes of the employees. He hopped into the elevator to head up to the 40th floor, flat screen TVs and all the elevators, and all of them said the same thing. General technologies where people are our greatest competitive advantage. He thought to himself, well, I think I'd like to work here. must be nice to work in a place you're not just a cog in the wheel. took the elevator up, and as he stepped out of the elevator, he went up to the assistant to uh, Theodore McBride, he said, hey, I'm here for the interview. Oh, Theodore, we'll see you in a moment. Uh, he's just finishing up a call overseas. Hey, how long have you worked for him anyway? Oh, I, I guess uh, almost 14 years. Well, it must be a pretty nice place to work. You've been here for 14 years. Oh, you have no idea. Ted is the greatest person I've ever worked for in my life. Well, tell me about that. Well, oh, I'm sorry, he'll see you now. Walked him over to the Ted's door and she whispered in his ear, he expects the best of us, and we give him our best because we know he gives his best to us. As he walked in the door, he met Ted. Ted walked up and said, hey, I'm Theodore McBride. You can call me Ted. It's great to have you in here. Come on, let's sit down. They came and they sat down together, and as they began the dialogue, the reporter said, i got to ask you the question. It kept me up all night. Ted said, why you? Honestly, I never take interviews. I get requests all the time for interviews. But I chose you because you're green and you're inexperienced. You haven't yet been tainted by arrogance. He goes all day long. I hear people on the news reporting about they know exactly what's going to happen, the stock market going up or the stock market going down. There's a yellow journalism approach. A few years ago, somebody accused me of selling my stock, a large chunk of stock, because I knew the stock was going to go down. But it didn't go down. turns out I sold the stock because it was my daughter's wedding and I was going to pay for it. I've read your writing. There's something about your writing that's intriguing. It's honest. And I wanted to find somebody I could trust because I want to hand to you the seven most powerful leadership principles for managing people. And I want to put it in the hands of someone I could trust. He was simultaneously offended and intrigued that Theodore McBride had read his stuff and was going to entrust him with these seven management principles. He said, well, tell me. Pull out his notebook. Well, Ted began. He said, well, honestly, it began back in 1957. 1957, I had just finished my MBA at the University of Texas. I had worked really hard in the financial department, and as we're headed toward uh, the end of the year, I'd already gotten my first job offer. Several months before school was ended, and I was going to be working in general technologies, a company that I'd heard about. I was going to be working in the financial department, and when they told me about the job, they told me I'd be managing nine people. And I immediately got a little scared. I knew I was a straight-A student. I knew I could handle the, uh, the financial side, but I was an arrogant graduate with my MBA who had no experience managing people. Well, what did you do? Well, I went and talked to Jack, Jack Newman. He was my professor in my MBA program. I said, Jack, I got the job. And Jack said, oh, that's fantastic. You're going to do great for the company. More than that, you're going to be a great ambassador. You're going to be great... 
example of what our program entails here. What's wrong? I just don't know if I can do it. What do you mean? You're a straight-A student as much as I remember. It's the financial part I got. I just, I don't know how to manage people. Could you help me? I felt like he was letting his mentor down. He paused for a second. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, Ted. I, uh, a lot of students who are at this point in the program get senioritis and spring fever. They're ready to go. If you give me every Saturday, every one, between now and the end of the year, I will teach you everything I know about managing people. But don't tell me now, because I don't want to devote my time. You know, besides being a professor, I have a consulting business, and I do not want to teach you what I know about leadership unless you're open, committed, and teachable. Well, that day, Ted said he went home. He thought, every Saturday, oh my goodness, the time I'd be spending is sleeping in. And Well, you know, I'd be a fool. This guy charges hundreds of hours, dollars an hour for folks for his, and he's offering to me for free. And this is a friend, somebody I respect. He calls him up and says, let's do it. Jack says, great. Meet me at 8 o'clock a.m. Right on the corner of the university, the business school. Oh, and by the way, wear jeans. Click. Wear jeans. 8 o'clock, he showed up, and sure enough, up pulls a truck. And in the truck is, is his mentor, Jack. He'd never seen him out of a three-piece suit. And there he is with a T-shirt and jeans and old cowboy boots and a pickup truck with faded paint. And he says, hop in. As they drove their way out to the Texas mountains, they came across his ranch. His ranch was gorgeous. Huge estate, ponds, fences. He thought to himself, maybe I will go into the consulting business one day. As they drove in, they made their way uh, into his driveway. He parked. And Jack turned to him and says, hey, by the way, before we head in, uh, usually I check on my sheep twice a day. I usually do it before now, but I thought you might want to be part of it. He thought I'd want to be part of it, is what he thought. But Ted said, great, that sounds like fun. So sure enough, they headed out to the sheep herd. As they stepped into the, uh, the sheep herd, Jack immediately had some sheep. He immediately stepped into the ring with the sheep, and you could smell it. The smell of sheep. This was not a new car smell. This was the smell of sheep. Ted was like, man, what is this? I don't want to be involved in a bunch of sheep. But he didn't say that out loud. Well, as he made his way, he, he came to pick up his first sheep. He grabbed the sheep and he began to examine it. He began to look at it. He began to hold it. He began to, to take that sheep and look at its, its hooves. He began to examine it and make sure there were no marks in it. He began to make sure that there were no problems with it. In fact, he spent a lot of time looking over this sheep. More than that, he uh, turned to Ted and said, Hey, Ted, why don't you hop in here? Why don't you jump into the sheep herd with us? Well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on in. It just smells so bad. What'd you expect? A new car smell? He steps in. He goes, come, hold one of the sheep. So he stepped in. And sure enough, here he is with these lambs and with these sheep in the pen with them. And man, it was not the new car smell. He says, well, tell you what, how about you count them for me? And so... Ted began to count the sheep. 42? That's what I got too, 42. He was amazed that his mentor actually sat down and not only looked at every one of the sheep, but the sheep seemed to recognize his voice. They seemed to know him by name. They seemed to, to care about him. He says, these sheep seem to care about you. He says, they sure do. And the feeling's mutual. I love them too. 
He goes, well, should we head in, start talking business? Yeah, just hold on. He took each sheep and he began to look through their, their coat. He began to look for disease, scars, any hurts or pains. Some of the stuff they saw on the sheep were pretty disgusting. Ted wasn't sure if he'd be able to eat breakfast that day. As he looked under the coat, he said, yeah, what are we looking for? We're looking for gnats. We're looking for ticks. Looks like this one's going to be pretty good for the rest of the season. We're especially worried about nasal flies. Nasal flies? What's nasal flies? Well, there's a particular fly that will lay an egg. And the fly will actually fly into the nose of the, uh, the sheep and they'll lay eggs up. And the, the larva will get in their head and will actually give birth in their head. And it just starts driving the sheep crazy. So what we try and do is we try and dip them once or twice a year to protect them from that. Well, at this point, Ted was really ready to go. But Jack went and looked at not one, but every single one of the 42 sheep. He checked on them. He looked at them. He made sure they were feeling well. He wanted to see if there was anything that was hurting them, anything that they needed to worry about. And after he had finished checking all the sheep, he said, all right, why don't we head inside? But just as they were about to head inside, Jack said, oh, wait, one more thing. He then made his way around. He checked the fence, made sure there was, the fence was protecting them, that there was no way in which they were going to get out. He saw a hole one of the sheep had started to dig, and he actually filled it in with his boot. He headed over to the pond to make sure that they had water. He checked the area of the grass to make sure they had things to eat. It had been an hour they had been spending hanging out with the sheep. He said, yeah, twice a day, either me or my red ranch hand will check on the sheep and just check over, make sure everything's doing well. He said, all right, you want to head in for breakfast? Ted says, yeah. So they head in for breakfast. They sat down at his kitchen table. As they arrive at the kitchen table, they have an incredible breakfast. And as they're eating together, Ted turns to... Uh, so Jack says, all right, I'm ready to get started. He says, all right, great. Well, um, why don't you grab your coat and we'll hop in the truck and we'll head back. I thought we, you were going to help me with mentoring and learning how to manage people. He said, yeah. I already gave you the lesson. Didn't you get it? Now, this was years before Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi, so you know he didn't quite catch on. It's 1957. He says, what do you mean? All we did is hang out with a bunch of smelly sheep. He said, listen, Ted, your flocking skills, not your financial skills, will determine your success in business. You see, most people focus on the work and not the workers. And yet what I learned as a ranch hand in Wyoming years ago is that the leadership principles of the shepherd are the things that have allowed me to be successful in business. You need to know, number one, know the condition of your flock. You see, we all, we all need a shepherd, and eventually we all need to be a shepherd. And if you will focus on the workers, you will get the best out of the work. If you just see the people, these nine folks, your flock that you're going to work for at General Technologies as a bunch of stinking sheep, just cogs in the wheel to advance your career, you will never be successful. But if you begin to look at all the people in your life as a flock that you can care for, that you get down, they know you by name, they follow you, you check on them, you, you set boundaries and perimeters for them, you check and make sure that their needs are provided for, their water and their food. If you care about them, you know what makes them tick. You know their hurts and their pains. You know what's affecting their work performance. When you are a sheep who checks in on your people, you will go anywhere and everywhere and be successful. These are the principles of the way of the shepherd. 
He said, and that's where I began, that first principle, that I was going to be the kind of person who practiced the way of the shepherd with those in my life as well. And those are the principles I put in place in the company. Well, the idea of leadership coming from a shepherd is something that God introduced thousands of years ago. God is constantly referring to himself as a shepherd leader. In fact, one of the most important principles of being a shepherd leader and knowing the condition of your flock dates back to 3000 B.C. 3000 B.C., a shepherd was born. His name was not Jesus. It was a thousand years before that. His name was David. And David was the kind of person who was a shepherd. He is known for his mighty battle against Goliath as a teenager. He's known of his, as an elementary school, uh, or at least preteen, his battles with lions and bears as a shepherd. He'll eventually be an incredible warrior, a mercenary, leading a band of mercenaries, uh, defeating incredible odds in war. He then will become a king, a poet, a commander, and he leaves a legacy to, to this day, Jerusalem is called the city of David because of the impact of the shepherd. His leadership left a legacy, and he was born in a little town called Bethlehem, which is where he worked. And God said that when he was looking for a leader, he picked this guy because he knew what it was like to lead like a shepherd. So if you're looking to know how to value people or be valued, how to manage people and push productivity, if you want to know how to individually invest in grandchildren or children, if you want to know how to get the best out of your flock, be it a family, be it a department, or be it a few people that report to you, the Bible speaks so boldly to that. Know the condition of your flock. We're going to look at, we're going to look under, and then we're going to look often. The first principle we find is that we need to look at. Shepherds know how to look at sheep. The first thing, whether it's with your kids, your grandkids, or your employees, to get to know your sheep, your flock, but one sheep at a time. People don't want to be a flock or a cog. They want to be known for who they are. Shepherd knows how to identify each person on their team, to identify them with individual strengths, individual dreams and hopes and motivations. The shepherd gets to know them, their hurts, their pains, values them, loves them, recognizes them. He doesn't just call them his team. He doesn't just see them as the flock. He interacts with them. He looks at them in the eye, one sheep at a time. Now, some of us had parents like that. Some of us didn't. And you know if you did. Some of us, we were part of the flock. We were dad's boys. We were mom's kids. We were just a flock. But we're always having to live up to mom's brother's example or sister's example. We weren't like them. We were the black sheep, right? But others of us had parents who recognized we were totally different from our brother or sister. But that shepherd knew us and honored us and celebrated us and valued us and understood that what made us tick was not what made our brother or sister tick. And if you didn't have parents who did that, you longed for it. You wished they understood how you ticked. You wish you had a shepherd who could see you as a sheep, not just a flock. Well, what happens in the story in the Bible is that Samuel shows up to Bethlehem. And he did what the Lord said. He came to Bethlehem. And as he shows up, the elders come out to, to greet Samuel and they say, Samuel, do you come peaceably? Because every time Samuel came, he came with bad news that something was going to happen. He says, I come peaceably. Whew. I'm here to offer a sacrifice. In fact, God's looking for a new leader. So I'd like you to invite Jesse and his sons to come with me to the sacrifice. So Jesse, who's David's dad, is invited and all his sons 
and they invite them, all the sons, to the sacrifice. The only thing is, he doesn't invite his youngest son. He just sees his family as a flock. And you know what? I know my sons. Many of them look like commanders. Many of them look like leaders. Many of them look like warriors. If God's looking for a leader, I know he would want one of these sons. He doesn't even invite the last one. Can you imagine how David felt? He wasn't even invited to try out. See, his dad was not a great shepherd. His dad did not value him. In fact, he'll write later in a book called Psalms about the pain and the ache he had of wishing he had grown up in a family where he had been shepherded and valued and loved and understood. And yet he's going to find that what he didn't have in his earthly dad as a shepherd, he found in his heavenly father who did see him, his strengths, his uniqueness, his poetry, his artistry, his warrior mentality when his dad totally missed it. You see, what Jesse refused to do was see each of his sons one sheep at a time. Instead, he just broad brushed and didn't even invite the one who was a black sheep. The second thing we notice as the passage continues is not just that he looked at, but he looked under. Look at how God as shepherd, God as leader looks under the coat. What I mean by that is as a leader with our kids, with our grandkids, with our employees, we need to look under the coat. We need to see the condition of the workers as well as the work, that the people matter. And this isn't just a technique. This is a heart that, that folks recognize if a, if a dad, if a manager, if a coach, if a friend really cares about them or you're just using them. The shepherd looks under the coat, really wants to know your aches and your pains and your hurts and your heartaches. Look what happens here. So it was that they came. They looked at Eliab, one of the sons. And said, oh, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Look at this guy. This is a man's man. This is a warrior's warrior. And God says, nope, not him. Next brother. Next brother. Next brother. All the way down the line. To the which point, God turns to Samuel and says, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord looks under the coat. He does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. That when we interact with folks, when we manage people, we know their heart. We know how to get the best out of them because we know our sheep. We know the players we have. We've created an environment of teamwork and love in our families. We are a flock. What it means to be a hoven, what it means to be in your department. There's a flock. But each person is a sheep that you care about. You've looked under the surface. You know their heart and you know how to get the best out of them. Don't you wish... Your mom and dad had done that for you. If you did, aren't you glad they did that for you? If they didn't, don't you remember a coach who did it? Don't you remember a mentor who did it? Don't you remember your first boss who did it? And for the first time, somebody took interest in you and invested in you or shepherded you in a way that was profound. It impacted you for, for decades. Well, they keep going down the line. Nope, 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 nope. To which point, Samuel turns to Jesse and says, God told me to come here to anoint one of your sons. I told you, invite all the sons. Did you invite all your sons? Um, well, no. There is one more. Which gets us to a third principle. Where God looked under the coat and understood, as we'll see in a moment, how powerful, what was unique about David. His dad didn't. He looked often. Now, his dad didn't look often. See, Samuel said to Jesse, I love this, are all, look at that word, are all the young men here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. He doesn't even call him by name. 
What a crummy dad, right? I mean, his son is a cog in the wheel. Yeah, there's the, the youngest. What's his name? Um, uh, Daniel? David? David? No, no. David. Yeah, David. He doesn't even call him by name. You talk about a shepherd who doesn't look often. He's out with the sheep, caring for his dad's sheep, his dad's company, his dad's business, his dad's assets, and he doesn't even know him by name. Here's a father, here's a shepherd, here's a leader, here's a business owner who doesn't even check often on one of his most valuable employees. Yeah, there is the youngest. And there he is, uh, keeping the sheep. And I love this. Samuel turns to Jesse and says, send and bring him here. Now, we don't know if he can see him by saying he is out there. He just pointed to the, to the horizon and said, he's out there somewhere. In the area of Bethlehem, I got a chance to visit there. It's monstrous. The chance of finding somebody would take you hours, if not days, to find where the sheep might be. So we don't know. But here's what we do know. Samuel says, we will not sit down until he comes here. Oh, man, I've been standing up for a while, Samuel. I think we'll stand and wait for the son you neglected. Three in the morning. Could we sit down yet? We're going to wait for the son. How does it feel to be put in discomfort for someone else? How does it feel to not be valued? <laughs> Samuel was in this crotchety old guy. But he waits the whole time. They stand there until David comes in. And so he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy. It's like, this is like, this is like Opie, right? Opie has just shown up from, uh, from Andy Griffith's show. He's ruddy, he's got bright eyes, he's good looking. And the Lord said, as soon as he walks in, arise, that's the one. Anoint him. And how powerful must that have been? In fact, David will speak about it in his personal journals years later. That God knew him. That God had watched him. That God had heard his prayers and seen his victories out in the, in the fields when nobody else was paying attention. What must it have felt like for his whole life to be neglected and to have some leader... That, that, the leader of the universe say, I not only know you, I have been watching you and I want someone like you to run not just the company. I want you to run the country and people are going to be talking about you 2000 years later and you thought you were neglected out in the field. Think about what that did to David, how valued he felt, how understood he felt. Well, somebody gets me. No, he's going to go off the track a lot, but God's going to continue to shepherd him and help him. He too, like sheep, goes astray, but God continues to see that underneath it all, he has a heart to do what's right for God. There was a study done uh, in Business Insider that said there's 15 CEOs of, of, of Fortune 500 companies who had learning disabilities. And they did not fit into a typical educational system because of dyslexia, because of ADD, and yet they became leaders of some of the top companies in the United States. And so many times we have kids who don't fit into the traditional teaching environment. We have a tendency to indirectly or through our nonverbals communicate that they, they don't cut it, they don't make it. But to be a shepherd as a parent means that we look under the surface and say that maybe this traditional teaching environment just doesn't access what's great in you. And we begin to believe and look in and find the mechanisms to make sure our kids know they are loved and they are shepherded and they are valued. We learn when to use the, the rod and when to use the staff of instruction. We begin to learn how to get the best out of our people because they know we love them genuinely. 
Well, sure enough, David shows up, and the next part of the passage, Samuel anoints him with oil. And what they would do in those days is they would take oil and pour it over your head. And the sign of the, the oil coming down over your face was a reminder that God was covering you, that you were chosen, that you were chosen by God. And David, who's been neglected his whole life, is suddenly before all his brothers and before his family being anointed and saying, God sees you matter. God sees strengths and talents in you that others didn't. Now, even after this, his brothers will still make fun of him, tear him down, don't think he's capable of it. Even when he comes up against Goliath, his brothers are still as ordinary as ever. But God said, I see something in you. Now, later on in the New Testament, a book called Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, which tells about the acts of the church when it first started, you know, 2,000 years later, God describes that he had checked in on David often. Look what it says. It says, I have found David, the son of Jesse. I watched him. I was the shepherd who watched him out in the field. He sang songs. I listened to his songs. In fact, I want to use his songs to be recorded in the Bible for people years later. I watched him fight a lion and a bear, which prepared him for Goliath. I watched his heart to be responsible when no one else was looking. I watched him. I observed him. I saw him. I understood him. I heard his aches and his pains as this mighty warrior called out of the neglect and the pain of not being shepherded by his dad. And I love this idea that God as shepherd checks in on his sheep often. A lot like Jack did. Might not be twice a day, but he checked in. He looked under the coat. He made a regular occurrence to know that people matter. That people are valued, that you're part of something greater. And you're not just you're not just important because of what you contribute. You are important because of who you are. And when I communicate that, it brings the best out of you. I found David, and he was a man after my own heart. He was one of the greatest shepherds who ever lived with Jesus. If you haven't never studied Jesus, even if you're not sure you believe in Jesus, if you're not sure you believe Jesus is the Son of God for sure, just study him purely from a leadership model and see what happens. He's got three years to change the world. In three years, here's his flock. Hey, you know what I need to get? A government official. He hires a guy named Matthew, a government official who works for the government. His name is Levi. Jesus gives him a nickname. Hey, you know what? No longer Levi. I want to call you Matthew. Then he, another guy in his flock, he gets a zealot who is an anarchist who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. Now, that's a tough leadership challenge. And he has the zealot and the government official all in his organization. Then he gets some fishermen, business owners. Uh, Peter had a house on the beach, very affluent. Uh, seemingly, if you go and look at their homes, they owned their own business. They had their own employees. They had their own boat, which was unheard of in those days. So Jesus combines all these business leaders and all these people from different walks of life. And it's amazing how he brings them together. He cares about each one at a time. One day he's saying that with, with James and John. He says, you know, guys, can I give you a nickname? In fact, Peter. We're going to no longer call you Peter. We're going to call you Rocky because I've seen something about you. You've got this rock-solid commitment. You've got this stability to you. And in fact, upon your confessions that you've made about seeing what I'm about, I want to build my church on the kind of stuff you're doing. Wow. Hey, you guys who no rabbi asked you to, to follow, I want you to know you can come and follow me. Wow. One day he was over in a city, and people weren't accepting his message real well. And so the disciples and Jesus are walking off, and, and John says, Jesus, I can't believe I wouldn't accept your message. You did such a great job. Will you call down fire and burn that place up? John, John, John. Yeah, John, we're going to call you the sons of thunder because, you know, John, I appreciate the loyalty. I appreciate that you're mad at how they treated me. You're a son of thunder. 
gives him a nickname. But later John will say, in my anger, in my robustness, in my overreaction, John will refer to himself in his letter as the disciple that Jesus loved. There's something about the nicknames. There's something about the, the, the cherishedness. There's something about the checking in. Jesus was able to take a flock of people and in three years change the entire world that we're talking about it 2,000 years later. Because he knew the condition of his flock. He knew how to check in. He knew how to look under the coat, understand the unique motivations. He turns to Nathaniel one time. Nathaniel says, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't take nothing from anybody. And Jesus says, great, I like that about you. You're a man in whom there's no guile. I like your straightforwardness. Really? Really? I've had several mentors in my life that have shepherded me and continue to shepherd me, in fact. I remember my first job, I worked at Moody Moral Church in Chicago. I had a, a guy named Mike Milko. Who's the pastor of families. He sat me down. He said, Chad, you're only going to be working here for nine months before you graduate. You're probably not going to get much done. I mean, I was like idealistic. I was going to change the whole church in nine months. He's like, honestly, you're probably not going to get much done in nine months. He goes, but I want to walk with you. And I want to help you discover how God's made you and designed you and uniquely created you. Because that's going to last the next 20 years. And I'll never forget, it's been 20 years. He handed me the, of the many conversations we had. I mean, this guy had multiple master's degrees, multiple doctor's degrees. He's always working on two more degrees. And he was spending lunch with me every week. I remember Mike one time gave me a piece of paper. It said on it, it was an article from Chuck Swindoll, who was a famous pastor, who said, nothing to lose and nothing to prove. He said, Chad, when you get to the place that you have nothing to lose and nothing to prove, you can finally start to really impact wherever you end up working. Because you're not in your insecurity trying to prove something to somebody. You can really do your best. And you don't have anything to lose, so you're not motivated by fear to hide or to push blame off. And 20 years later, just one of those meetings is still impacting, am I really operating with nothing to lose and nothing to prove? I got another guy who calls me every six months. His name's Mike. I'm sorry, his name is uh, Rich. And Rich will say, Chad, I've been thinking of you. So I met Rich when I was 21. And Rich said, Chad, there's something in you. I, I, I like your humility. I like your creativity. But I love the fact that you, you haven't allowed success to make you arrogant. So every six months, he'll check in on me. And he'll say, Chad, are you staying humble? I don't know. If I tell you I am, I'm probably in trouble, right? <laughs> he says, I've been praying for you. And he'll say, you know, Chad, last time we talked, you asked me to pray about your wife's sinuses. How are those doing? You asked me, you told me that Quinn was going to start his speech therapy. How's that going? He knows me. He knows what's going on. He's shepherding me. He's caring for me. I remember my mom. I'll talk a little about her for Mother's Day. But my mom understood that I was unique as a creative person. I was never going to operate. I was, I'm a maverick. I think differently. I'm always asking what if and why not. And I remember my mom wanted to prepare my dad for coming into my bedroom. So she had a little sign that said, creative kids are rarely tidy. <laughs> and you know what? My mom knew me. That doesn't mean I shouldn't try and clean up. She's like, you know what? Let's. Let's not overdo it. There's something unique here. I was shepherded by my mom, by my dad, by Mike, by others. When you've been shepherded by someone, you can't want, not want to do that with others. You start flock watching. You look at your flock, one sheep at a time, your kids, your grandkids. You begin, even though you may connect to one more than the other, you really genuinely begin to understand each of them. You begin to look under the coat of each one of them. You begin to check in often to know that they matter to you, matter to God. You see, what happens is leaders have this ability to not only seize moments, but to create moments. And not just create moments, but know that there's power in those moments. When your daughter wants to talk and you're ready to go to bed, but she say, this is a moment. When you have an employee and you're running fast, but you can tell something has happened. And you find out that they're 
a brother just passed away or they have a son or daughter who's sick. And when you begin to invest in people and give them your best as a shepherd, you will not be surprised when you find out that they give you their very best in return. What would it look like for us as moms, as bosses, as friends, as leaders, as coaches to expect the best of others, to get the best out of others, because we as shepherds give our very best to create, make, and maximize moments. Why don't we take a brief moment as we conclude the service and just let me have a prayer for us, a prayer that God could begin the process of shepherding you so that you could shepherd others. Let's pray together. Father, you know, many of us here have been shepherded well, and we say thank you that you have allowed us to model real, caring, genuine leadership. Because others of us have not. And because of that, we've had to get attention from the people in our life only when we did well or when we got in trouble. Father, I ask that you would be our shepherd right now, that you would bring comfort to those who are hurting, who have come in the door this morning as we look under the coat. They're grieving. They're grieving a circumstance in life. They're grieving a death. They're grieving a, a, a sickness. Father, I ask for those who came in discouraged that you would be the shepherd who encourages them, that they are loved. For those who feel unnoticed, that you will remind them that you do notice when they're out in the field seemingly by themselves. God, I ask that you will right now in your presence, in your way, allow each person to know that you are the leader and the shepherd they've been longing for their whole life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here for Flock Watchers Part 1. We'll see you next week as we continue the series. If you're new to Horizon, we'd love to say hi. Put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. If you came prepared to give financially, there's some offering boxes on your way out. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.